the main event of the evening from the oddsusa.com studio in St. Louis, Missouri. This is the moment you've all been waiting for. If you hang around the fight game long enough, you're going to run into gangsters. Often figurative, but sometimes literal. For me, it happened when I joined the youth-based United States Fight League and first interviewed coach Ruben Saldana. He knows that life very well, despite, ironically, being the product of a military family. So I was uh, born in Brooklyn um, by a white Italian mother and a uh, basically a black Puerto Rican father. I was raised in Miami in my younger years, but both of my parents worked for the military. Actually, all three of my parents, because my stepfather eventually came to the picture, worked for the military, for the Army, to be specific. And so we, we were able to travel all over the United States. I lived pretty much a little bit of everywhere, um, North Carolina, Texas, um, the Keys, uh, the military is what brought us to Miami, the Homestead Air Force Base, and the University of Miami was our first spot that we stayed at in Miami. Um, and the uh, Air Force Base, uh, no, the Naval Training Center, even though we were in the Army, it's kind of weird. They kind of put everybody with everybody, uh, brought us to the Naval Training Center here in Orlando, so that's why I ended up in Orlando. But we've, we've lived in a lot of places as a military brand. That's pretty much what happens anyways. It was Miami. Miami was like the big turning point in my life. Although he would be involved in martial arts later in life as a coach, martial arts and the movies of Bruce Lee were what landed him in the back of a police car for the very first time. Before I was one of those kids, that, you know, straight, you know, from 75, born in 75, so I was one of those Bruce Lee admirers. You know, you know in my head I was into because I read uh, uh, martial art magazines. <laughs> you couldn't tell me I wasn't, right? In fact, it's, it's crazy because my very first arrest had to do uh, um, because I was dressed up as a ninja on the uh, in Maryland, in Fort Lee, Maryland, dressed up as a ninja. And I guess they thought, I don't know what the hell they thought I was, because I was really, really tiny. I think I was eight or nine years old. And uh, that was the first time I ever got arrested and put in a cop car and brought to the military police um, room or whatever. I don't even know what they call it, headquarters there. And then, you know, my parents had to sign that because I had a ninja star. That was considered like some kind of deadly weapon or something to have out like that. They didn't, they didn't charge me with anything. They, they, they detained me. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, I don't think I had a gun pulled out on me, but we, uh, he was, he definitely had his hand on the gun and he was like, hey, come here, take the mask off. You know, it was one of those ninja, ninja masks that you buy at the little Chinese stores, you know, and back then it was real popular to buy the Nub Chucks, the Ninja Stars, and the, uh, Ninja Mask. And we used to play those boards, those little forts and stuff. We had little clubs, house clubs and stuff. And, um, so we were in the woods playing, and when I come out of the woods, there, there goes the MP. And he, so he has his hand on his arm. He's like, take the mask off. I take it off. He's like, oh, you're a kid. And I was like, yes, sir. I, literally, I was probably 400 feet away from my house. I'm pointing at my house. I'm like, I live right there. He's like, no, get in the car. I still had to go down to the police station. And um, I remember crying at that point. I had never been in a police car. I had never been to a police station. And here I am. And that's it was my mother and father who bought this stuff. Everything I had. The Ninja Star. It was a gift. I think it was a birthday gift. <laughs> Crazy. And, uh, yeah, they said, oh, so when my mom went down there, she went to him a year. What the heck? He was arresting my son. She's like, oh, we, 
And then, you know, she was like, for freaking insight, he's like, he can't have that out, blah, blah, blah. So I guess uh, walking around with a ninja star on the military base or anywhere, I don't know. I don't even know the law on that. It was supposedly illegal or dangerous or something. So I kept the ninja stars in the house from there on out. Like I said, we had little ninja clubs in the woods. So, you know, that was my um, that was my first, what I thought was martial arts training. You know, kids, uh, we read the magazines, the black belt magazines, the kung fu magazines. And we would go out there, build our little ninja forts all throughout the woods, and then we'd fight it out. And so, um, yeah, it was it was it was very grassroots, very very TV, very generic. What it did was because before that, I I didn't pay attention to the police. Neither I didn't have either a good or a bad attitude towards them. Um, my parents didn't either, or if they did, they never expressed it to me. They neither expressed support for or against. And we didn't have any law enforcement directly related to our family at that time that I knew of. So, um, yeah, it definitely affected me. You know, I mean, that's the first time you meet an officer, you know, that's coming out, you know, that I'm engaging with, and it's on negative notes. And here it is, you know, you're, you put me in a cop car and arrest me behind a ninja star that my parents bought for me. You know, when you're young, your parents are gods, man. That's your gods. You know what I mean? What mom and dad does, it says that's what's law. So here comes this figure uh, taking away the law. Taking away the God, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The upbringing. Yeah, of course it did. And then, you know, my introduction to cops in Miami engaging with was, was worse. It was actually physical. Um, and it, it just got a little worse from there, you know? And then eventually, you know, it, it became, it, it, it became a me versus them or us versus them. But of course, by that time, I had chosen to be a criminal. So it was going to be that way. Aside from a shift in his perception of law enforcement, Ruben was able to put his first run-in with the law behind him. The end of his parents' relationship would be another major turning point. It was the divorce between my mother and father. My dad was the neighborhood dad, so my dad was the type that took, took all the kids in the neighborhood on the military bases to the swimming pools, to the creeks, to uh, do boxing. He was each trained... Uh, kids and soldiers on the army base for free for like i believe 30 years had some authentic uh pro world champs come under his hands um so he you know when they got divorced there went you know my hero you know because that was always my dad to other kids so that was big ruben and i was little ruben so big ruben wasn't nothing to be played with right so little ruben was off limits so as soon as dad got out of the picture um, the, I guess, you know, it's the catch word they call now, it's the bullying, right? It, I was definitely, and I didn't like violence. I didn't like fighting. I didn't like violence. I didn't like getting touched. I didn't like any of that. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the rude kids, the mean kids were, started bullying me real, real bad. I, um, excelled in one of my elementary grades. I think I went from third to fifth. I skipped fourth and the kids were picking on me so bad there that they had to drop me back down to fourth grade. Again, um, academically, I was able to hang in there, but it was just the kids were too big, and they, 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 I had a lot of problems. I remember them clearly. And then, um, yeah, it was a divorce. So I started hanging around kids that were mean kids. And, um, you know, mean kids do mean things, right? So, you know, it started with that. Then we started throwing little, um, little stupid stuff, man, R ringing doorbells and running, um, doing stuff, lawless stuff that I wouldn't have never done with my father around, you know, and it just started like that real minor, uh, little thievery here and there, stealing little candies, little stupid stuff, until I moved to Miami, then I then I hit the big league, right, <laughs> the kids in Miami were on a whole other level than the kids on the military bases, 
when I moved to Miami, the cycle started all over again because by this time I was heavy into skateboarding. So there was about three of us that I remember. Uh, actually, about four or five of us. There was a Mexican kid, a white kid, a black kid, and uh, myself. Um, so I was considered the Puerto Rican of the group. And we used to have a little skate crew. And then we hooked up with the biker crew. And uh, so we used to, you know, we, we were the cool kids. We were the ones that weren't out there. But the school that I went to was so gang-infested, um, it, it was insane. And I got jumped by, by every one of the gangs. So it came a point that one of the uh, power gangs that was in there took me under their wing. They were like, nah, man, we're not letting them jump on you no more, da 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 I mean, it really was horrible. I would skip school just to, just to not get jumped. I hated that school. I hated, like I said, I didn't like violence before I got there, right? So I can't go, it, it was hard enough to fight one-on-one because I just didn't like violence, right? And then to fight um, 20 or 30 kids from Miami that are packed and literally have guns, hitting people with locks, I mean, that I stood no chance at all. At all. I mean, they used to whoop the teachers over there in the school I was at. Yeah, it was like it was a very lawless school. It was it was it was a. Uh, I, I would say of all moments in my life that that probably traumatized me more than anything from seeing the the, the knives, the, the guns, seeing teachers get knocked out and thrown under cars um, by like thirty, forty kids, um, seeing the guns come out, seeing them being shot off. Um, it seemed like the only people that cared in that school were the coaches. Man, they were always front lines, and the coaches had a lot of respect. People respected the coaches there, but like the teachers, it, it was. They they did nothing, man. I don't even know if they could have did anything by themselves, to be honest. But they 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 weren't on the front line with anything. They actually just say racist stuff out their mouth and things of that nature. But um, it was a predominantly uh um, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Black, Mexican school, Latin and Black, and there was a couple of whites in there. Ruben had officially entered gang life first as part of a rival to Miami's International Posse, or INP, before a merger. The gang that that took me under their wing was the 308 Four Horsemen. These were uh, rivals of the International Posse. And then um, I used to hang out with the 299, 299 boys as well. So these two gangs were, these were streets. 299 Street was in Leisure City, and 308 Street was in Leisure City, and the school I attended was in Leisure City. We lived right outside of Leisure City. So these were the gangs that actually were uh, number one rivals to uh, the gang that I would eventually end up joining. So, um, yeah, I was I was a prospect uh, um, to become uh, one of their baby gang members, and, and uh, fake had it that I moved into a, a neighborhood that was a rival of the gangs I just mentioned. So my, my, my partners from, you know, the junior gang and the skateboard itself would, would come over there on their bikes and skateboards, and eventually one of the gang members in the neighborhood I had moved to came to my house. He used to come by, play Nintendo, hang out with me and my sister, real cool dude, and, uh, but he was very, very, very dangerous, that, real, real real notorious in that in that section of Miami. Like real was known for fighting and, and knocking people out, being jumped, knocking people like knocking four like one of the dudes you read about that you think doesn't exist, knocking four or five dudes out and then he, he was known for pulling out the gun and using it. So he was nothing to be played with. But he, he kinda took me under his wing and then he seen them guys over here and he made some threats to me and was like, Listen man and he was like little dog you're my you're my homeboy and all but if I catch them dudes over here again, he said they're not going to be able to leave this neighborhood, and you're going to have a lot of trouble. You know, he said it in, in a different type of language, um, a lot of curse words involved, and a lot of direct threats on what would happen to my house and this and that. So me as a frightened child, I was like, so I told them, you know, I was like, man, they don't want y'all over here no more, blah, blah. So they're like, F them, da, 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 but they never came back again. So I used to go to their neighborhood, 
And then walking with the same individual um, down the street, one day he just went and loading up on me. Bah, 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 bah. Started punching me, and I'm like, man, what? He's like, fight back. You're about to join us. So, you know, what little bit I could have did with him. Like I said, this guy was notorious with the hands ready, right? <laughs> and here it is, somebody like myself who doesn't like violence, doesn't, right? So I'm forced to fight back. And um, that was it, man. That was my beginning initiation into the baby gang. You know, I rewalked line two more times um, later on in the years, but that gang that I joined eventually became uh, joined the international posse. They kind of got swamped up by the international posse. My childhood friends in Miami that took me on the wing became enemies, right? So that's <laughs> that's how that story unfolded. It's called walking the back then in Miami we called it walking the line. They called it jumping in initiation, whatever names you want to call it. But yeah, that that did happen. Three minutes. And that was, um, that was, <laughs> uh, that initiation was, uh, it, it's actually what landed, uh, landed me with my, my gang nickname. Um, I, I, I was hanging out in the mall with some of the, 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 you know, we were called the junior gang, not called the junior, but we were the junior, um, portion of the gang that we were in, right? So we were hanging out in the mall and a bunch of, you know, trying to talk to a bunch of girls here. I think I'm 11, 12 years old. And, uh, I joined the gang before I even hit puberty, before I became a teenager. And then um, these girls started laughing. They're like, oh, my God, he looks just like that rat on, uh, on the Ninja Turtles, right? So my homeboys found it funny. They started calling, everybody started calling me Master Splinter because I had a long rat tail. I was still a skateboarder, right? I was a skateboarder slash gangbanger. And um, so what happened was during my initiation into the bigger gang, into the international posse, which at that time when I joined was the biggest gang in Miami, um, and this was 1989, so when I got initiated into that gang, I freaking, the main dude I was fighting, I kicked him in the chest like halfway across the field. And um, I did it two or three times. Like I was literally running, jumping, just I had freaking seen in the magazines that I was practicing when we were, and, and the, the, you know, the, the gang went crazy about it. It was, it was like a football uh, rally. Oh, that's why they call him Master Splitter. So, you know, they thought that everybody thought I had that nickname to this day. A lot of people think I had the nickname Master Splinter because of the martial arts stuff I loved, right? And it had nothing to do with it at all. It had, like, absolutely nothing to do with it. So when I would get in fights, a lot of people would be like, watch out for his kicks, man. Watch out for his kicks. That's, you know, and the kicks and stuff came from Taekwondo. I, I didn't get to that part. But when I was in, uh, when I was living in Texas, I started taking Taekwondo. Nothing serious, nothing long, not much, but a lot of my friends were into it, so I picked up some, a few things from them. Um, it's not even nothing worth. Uh, I wouldn't be entitled to even say I represented Taekwondo or you know it's a couple of months, two or three months in a gym, in the military base. Once I joined the gang in the area that I moved to in Miami, when I officially joined, when I officially got walked in, it was a wrap, man. You know, I I, I got influenced very easily by um by what the gang was doing, and there was no limits for that. Like, no, and we're talking Miami in the wild days. I don't think to this day Miami's had it wilder than the 80s to this day. And there's a lot of people who will agree with me. Um, you know, and here it is. I joined the biggest gang in Miami. So it's like it's a real powerful network. Um, we had chapters all throughout, the, you know, all throughout Miami. So it was like we could literally go from Homestead on the way up to Hialeah, basically. And we'd had chapters, hundreds of members, not just like five or ten dudes hanging out. I was all in, man. I was all in. Pretty much everything that gang members did, I did. It, you know, it, with the exception of drugs, that was like the only blessing that kept me away, man. What, 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 I, I never got hooked on drugs. Never did drugs at all. Period. And there's a whole story behind that. I don't know. It's probably it'll probably be boring to get into it. 
But um, I didn't get into drugs at all. After that, he'd climbed the ranks, fully committed. But Miami was very uh, much, much different because we were kind of, we were our own thing, but we were based upon L.A., Chicago, and New York games. So it was, it was, and it was different. A lot of our gangs um, got started from the breakdancing crews and the graffiti crews. You know, they just started warring and fighting with each other. A couple of Chicago gangs came down. Um, the movie Colors had a big influence in Miami, as in several other cities, because a lot of copycat gangs started coming out. You know, a lot of so-called Crips, so-called Bloods. And I say so-called because the guys that were starting it, they weren't from L.A. They were from and in Homestead, where we were from. You know, but they they watch this movie, all of a sudden they, they're claiming Crips and Bloods, right? They don't know nobody in L.A., never been in California. But um, but that doesn't mean they're not dangerous now. Cop, I see it all the time. Copycat gangs can be um, just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than the real deal because they, they're trying to prove more. They're trying to prove that they're living that way, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, where I lived at Miami, it, it was uh, it was a gang heaven, man. It, it, there was only the ghettos and farms out there and gangbanging and homestead at that time. You know, the other two... Probably most popping areas would probably be uh, Little Havana and um, I would say probably Hialeah, maybe even Carroll City. I mean, there was a lot of hot pockets, but like overall, where like almost every neighborhood was sold up with a gang, it was def definitely Homestead had that. You know, you just couldn't go from one neighborhood to another if you were gangbanging. Or if you were a, a neutral, somebody that didn't gangbang, you had a big chance of being robbed or, or jumped or whatever. But um, yeah, so when, when you do this silly stuff, you get, you, you know, you get rank. Um, the deception, what I call the deception, right? You get this rank, and then um, you start doing time, man. Your crimes start catching up with you, and you start doing time. So, you know, my first bid um, started when I was 16 years old. Um, it was an illegal sentence and something that's going to be coming out um, real soon, hopefully, uh, from New 21 over there in Arizona. Um, it was definitely an illegal sentence to send me to an adult prison system at 16 years old for a Grand Theft Auto. But they did it, and that just started the journey of leading up to uh, a lot of time in prison, man. It, it was all behind the gang, man, man. Staying loyal to the gang, never switched on nobody, never switched on nobody, never never jumped from one gang to the other gang. You know, um, there's a lot of people, uh, you know, of course, when you live in that gang life, like real, real serious, you're going to have haters. And, and you got dangerous haters, and then you just have haters. You know, oh, why they don't like them? They, they definitely can't say because I snitched or switched on them, right? So they, you know, they they got to resort to the, oh, I just don't like him or f him, f this, da da da. You know, it is what it is, man. You know, it the the gang, in, in particular in Miami, it's, it's kind of funky because everybody's gangster until gangster stuff happens, right? Like that saying that you see on the uh, on the media and stuff like that, or on the social media, that that applies a lot to a lot of Miami gangs back then because as soon as stuff got crazy. Dudes are getting locked up. They're coming back. I'm an ex. I'm an ex. Meet me the excluded. They're no longer active. They're no longer with it. No uh, shootings happen. And when shootings happen, people get killed. Innocent people. Gangbangers get killed. And, you know, it's it's crazy because it's like saying you're going to join the fire department and then there's a fire. You're like, hey, no, I'm not going in there, right? So, you know, when, when gang members are shooting at each other, one gang shoots another and that gang member dies, people are like in such shock. That, that such and such got shot. How could you be shot? That's crazy. Like, that's a gang lifestyle, a real authentic gang lifestyle. I understand the pain, and I know it sounds like I'm not being remorseful towards that, those that lost their, their life in that, in that, um, life of ignorance. I, I absolutely am. I'm just saying, like, don't be shocked when people sign up for that lifestyle. That's what's gonna happen. But, you know, but in Miami, it was very, very well known for, uh, 
gang members to go X real quick. I mean, it wasn't like Chicago where you had, you know, you had guys banging for 20, 30 years. It wasn't like California where you're from that neighborhood. You're always from that neighborhood. It wasn't like New York where there was a political element to it. Miami gangs were very wild. But um, the majority, I'll say about 90%. I could probably pick it out. I can, you know, write it down or go over my head all the uh, well-known legends of Miami, the gangs, and – Within five years, man, the majority of them, they weren't representing that no more. You know, uh, 95%. So if we got 100 gangbangers in Miami from 1989, example, and we fast forward that five years, uh, that out of 100 of them, 95 don't represent no more. So it was a very deadly game, but it was, um, you know, guys didn't take it serious until something serious happened. Then all of a sudden, you know, it's like a shock. You freaking sign up for the, you know, that's my thing with snitching too. From the game, I'm not talking about from a civilian point of view. I'm not talking about from a former gang member or none of that. I'm talking from a gang lifestyle. It, 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 it's, it's sick to see these guys put on these colors, put on these, you know, put on this lifestyle, and then something pops off, and then they're snitching their way out. Man, you shouldn't sign up for that, man. Plain and simple. Simple as that. You join the military, there's a war. You get sent out to sacrifice your life for this country, for that war, whether you agree with that war or not. It's not trying to pull out now. you got all the benefits for it. It's time to go out there and fight for the country. Right? You know, so it's the same thing with the game. You put that game, don't, don't freaking go to telling and becoming no rat snitch after you got the cuffs on you. You knew that was against the cold, you know? But, that, and that's, that's what made me leave the game. It's a, it's a fictitious fake lifestyle. It's fake. It doesn't exist, you know? Keep it real. Do all this time. Look, I almost, I almost spent two decades behind bars. That's starting at 16 years old. Two decades. Ruben said of his experience at 16. I actually thought it was a joke. Um, when they were taking me to the county jail, Orlando has a notorious county jail called 33rd Street. And uh, I, I really thought they were joking when they said that, that when they were telling me to call my mother and uh, that we were going to 33rd, that we weren't going to the to the juvenile detention. I had never seen the Orlando juvenile detention. I've never been in it, ne- never was afforded the level six, seven, eight programs, never, no kind of rehabilitation straight to the adult prison, jail, county jail. Let me say that, the adult county jail at 16. So my mom... They're like, wow, oh, they're lying. You know, they're trying to move me up. And the guy, the cop, grabs the phone from my hand. Bam, your son is going through. She's like, how? Oh, he's a kid. He's been waved over as an adult without a hearing, mind. But I, I don't want to get into the politics or the justice system with that. I ended up there. And when I remember when I got there, I had a, a rat tail braided up, real long rat, the same rat tail from Miami. But I had it braided up. I had gang beads on it. And um, the, a female correction officer came up into my cell and said, come here. She said, how old are you? I said, 16, she said, oh, my God, you look like 11 years old. People were still calling me Little Ruben at that time, not even knowing my father's big room. It's just because how small I was. I believe um, I could find my paperwork. I believe I was like 92 pounds when I when I hit the county jail because I still have my paperwork for my very first arrest. It's a pink or a green paper. So she was like, oh, my God. So she said, listen, sweetie, she said, I want you to turn around. Let me get those beads off you and let me un, un, unbraid your hair. She said, because you're going to probably have trouble in here with that. And she unbraided it, and, you know, she was like, my God, you're such a baby. I remember she kept telling me, you're such a baby, right? And then, um, so when they put me in the first cell block, first thing, first thing, dudes were saying, we're going to cut that tail off, line them up for the barbershop. So I just looked, went up to my cell block. Um, but one thing people will learn really quick when you're incarcerated, um, and I think this is all around the United States. I know it's definitely uh, in Florida. Um, the Latinos take care of each other. Like off time, it doesn't matter. Period. So right away, uh, the Mexicans come into the cell. Hey man, where you from? That and you know, start vibing. 
So, you know, the whole thing about they were going to force my tail off, and that wasn't happening anyways. I don't, I don't think they were. But, um, yeah, so then, you know, that that introduced me to the life of a, of a convict. So it doesn't make kids any better. So that's why I fight really, really heavy for uh, youth crime prevention and, and uh, prison uh, justice reform, man. It, it doesn't work. I, I mean, I've been around them. I was I was in that city. I was in 30, I was in a adult county jail at 16 years old, right? And I was with the, the other juveniles. And uh, man, what they did rehabilitate a single one of us. Not, not, not. I can't remember not one that it rehabilitated. You know. And then so the first day in prison, prison when you. My time graduated to the big house. Um, it was uh, it was scary, man. It was scary, and um, I'll tell you what. In Florida, it wasn't the uh, the other inmates that you had to be scared of because um, the convicts, the older guys, are actually scared of the uh, the younger guys. Overall, not everybody. Everybody's not walking around here, but the juveniles are what they call jits here in Florida, right? The jits were were the wildest ones, man. The jits were the first ones. You know, they say when you're young. You do things and don't think of the consequences, but when you're older and mature, you, you think of the consequences before you act, right? So, um, I, you know, juveniles are wild, man. The jits are wild. Jits be the first one to knock you off the head with locks. Jits are going to stick together. They're going to jump. They don't believe in a lot of one-on-ones. Um, the jits were, you know, so the problem with the officers, man, the correctional officers, and, and of course, this isn't a blanket statement, but, you know, if you see it and you're allowing it, that puts you in the damn state, same category as the other ones, the, the Florida, um, DOC at that time, we're talking 92, 93, um, was extremely abusive. And beyond, way beyond that, too. I mean, they, if you look it up, you, you'd probably be shocked to see how many, um, murder cases, you know, correctional officers got away with, right? Um, it was very abusive. The, the officers, when I got to Orlando Correctional Institution, it's called OCR, they got a new name for it now, new staff. Um, I, it was like looking at robots, man. And you remember, I had a military upbringing, so I'm used to, I'm used to discipline. I'm used to, like, you know, the soldiers being in line, uh, um, you know, the boot camp mentality, but these were like, they were on a whole level, level of cruelty, and, and I get it, you know, they wanted to break the back of the people when they got in, let people know off top, we run it, you don't run it, and they weren't lying, they ran, man. You know, if you went, if you ever heard, if you ever hear anybody from a Florida prison system saying, I ran that prison, they're lying. I'll tell them in their face, they're lying. Anybody's been in a Florida prison, at least a male Florida prison system, <laughs> Yeah, no, inmates don't run it. <laughs> Straight up, man. A gang-related double killing in 1998 would put Ruben, now in his early 20s, away for 15 years. We had almost 20 mem- uh, members from Miami come up to Orlando for a Puerto Rican parade and um, and just let people know the reason why I can speak about this publicly um, is because it's, it's well documented. It's public information. Court TV did a documentary on it. Um, all the news, all the newspapers covered it. So I'm not going to say nothing right now that can't be found publicly. So let me just make that real clear. Before people think I'm talking about my case, trying to throw, anyhow, I, I don't throw nobody in. I haven't snitched on a, on a soul ever. I haven't, I'm not responding. Nobody can say, oh, he's responsible for my arrest conviction. That's a damn Because nobody can produce paperwork. No police officer can come forward. No attorney can come forward to say, yep, he's the one. Never, right? So let me make that real clear because sometimes when people talk about their case, they try to uh, put that stigma and attach that to them, right? This is all public information that I'm about to give you right now. And uh, not for nothing, but I can't be tried twice, right? I've already went to trial, didn't get found guilty of the, the, the charges, got found guilty of the lesser degree charges. I can't be tried again, right? And I went to trial, didn't even testify on my own behalf, on my own. So more or less testifying against other people, that never happened as well. So I just got to make that real clear because, it, you know, 
I don't want that attached to me at all. Yeah, so what happened was um, two of the leaders came up from Miami, and they, you know, we had, um, at that time, we had a major association going on with, um, it's what people call the Chinese mafia, but that's not really what they were. And um, they had to do with marriages, becoming citizens, them paying before 9-11 for the laws changed, and um, they were, my Miami homeboys were, were demanding, um, were, were going against the deal, man, and um, they were basically demanding they get full pay before the divorces happened, you know, with the, with the to make them legal citizens and stuff, so it was a big beef, and I got caught in between the, and I was eventually stepped out, and I warned my Miami homeboys what was going, like months in advance, it was, this was like threats, death threats going back and forth, and they came up to collect the, uh, the money from this uh, Chinese mafia, and um, they left back in Miami and body bags. So they made uh, they made poor decisions, man. And so what ended up happening was because because um, a lot of people didn't know the facts of the case. So but because they went back to Miami and body bags, and um, they came up to see me that night. I mean, they they stayed with me every time they came up, and I stayed with them right when I went to Miami. But because of the uh, uh, of the nature of people in Miami didn't know it was going on, you know, our gang split right in half behind that. Who's down? Basically, Ruben supporters and Ruben haters, right? So I wasn't snitching on nobody, like I said. So, you know, people like, how the hell they go up there and then they come back there? So then all these rumors started coming up. Oh, they were fighting over leadership. They were fighting over drugs. They were fighting over a girl. I mean, a bunch of nobody, no Nobody could sit there and sit on that fact. So, you know, there was a lot of anger. Um, people said I put hits out on them and had them killed. That's what the state prosecutor went, prosecution went with. But if you watch the trial, you'll see that they can never um, pinpoint a, a, a motive, right? So the state prosecutor still with the fact of, oh, uh, uh, we're going to stick with the fact of our, um, what is that called, when, when they write the indictment, the indictment of, oh, yeah, he, he, um, Ruben put a hit out on them, right? But they never had a, um, a reason. Right, because everybody that was within the gang knows that they were saying that I had them killed for their leadership. Yeah, I, I was the leader of the gang. I didn't have to kill nobody to get their ring. You know what I'm saying? That was well known. That wasn't something that I denied. You know what I mean? Um, so uh, the whole thing about a drug setup, man, I, I didn't mess with drugs like that. I didn't, mess with, I didn't have kilos of cocaine. I, I don't even think to this day, man, I've had a, a, a cocaine bag in my hand, period, to this day at 44 years old. Right, so people that knew me, knew me, knew me, they knew it was lies. Matter of fact, the fiance that of my homeboys in Miami that got got killed, the fiance, the girl, right, that was involved, she's the one that married one of the Chinese dudes. And like I said, all this is public information out of their mouth, right? Um, she she's very good friends with me right now, very good. I just seen her like I think two months ago, three months ago. She's very good friends with me. So you you think if I had her, the love of her life knocked off, uh, her and I are gonna be straight right now? 20-something, 30-something years later, you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, that's that's for a whole other story, man. In fact, um, you know, documentary, book stuff, I, I definitely want to uh, do a, do a probably a little book or something on, on, on the case in details. This probably isn't the place to do that. But that's what happens, man, when you – the point of the, the – the moral of the story is this, without, you know, having to continue to go into detail. I mean, I'll answer any questions you ask me, but – Without going to, when you're loyal to this lifestyle, man, this is the thing that, that gang members don't understand. When you're loyal to the gang lifestyle, loyal is the key word, you're gonna end up in a bad place because you're gonna end up in a situation where your homeboys did some stupid, and then you got two, two, all, two, two ways to go. You snitch on them, cause you can't do the time, you didn't do the crime, or you're gonna, you're gonna do the time, 
even though you didn't do the crime. If you're living, right? And we already know how that goes. If you're living, it's just such a fictitious lifestyle. But, and I will say this thing, this might come as a surprise. I'm not against, um, I'm not against gangsters. I'm not against gangsters in the, in, in the word of gang members, right? Or, or those who join street organizations that, that have an intention of change, right? Because I know, man, I know without a shadow of doubt, there's many people that have embraced gangs because they didn't have a family upbringing. Or they may have had a family, but they didn't have love in that household. So this is literally all they've ever had. You know, this is what they, 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 they didn't get recruited into some other, um, sorority group, you know, to, to a college group. They didn't get past high school most of these So it's like literally the only family that they have, you know. I'm not against, but what I am against is when the leaders who most of the time are very young are telling them to do stupid stuff that they themselves aren't doing. You know what I mean? So it's like, all the old, all the founders of these gangs, man, these power groups, these power organizations, right, man, they're, they're sitting in prison wanting their members to do better right now. I know this for a fact, man. This isn't hearsay. This isn't third way part. This is a fact. They want their organizational members to do good things, man. They want to be free with their wives. They want to be free with their kids. They want to be able to get rained on and complain about the car breaking down on the highway. They don't want to be sitting in themselves, man. You know, they're old. These gangs were structured off of kids. If you go to the five, if you can name them off the top of your head, the five largest street organizations in the United States of America, and they're pretty easy to name, right? I don't need to name them, but they're pretty easy to find. Man, all of those were started by kids. This was a kid thing. These were kids. May have been rebellious, may have not been. And, of course, the streets ate them up. The criminal lifestyle ate them up. And they remained loyal, man. They, they were just loyal people to what they what they were doing when they were a kid. And that loyalty cost them a lot of time, man. And that loyalty cost them to go down a path that they now recognize was destructive. And they're trying to change that, man. And I believe I believe they can change. If they were released, I have no doubt in my mind if uh, uh, Larry Hoover was released, if Jeff Ford was released, if Lord Gino was released, if King Blood was released, I believe, man. And these are these are rivals that I'm naming, right? Or at one point or another were rivals. Let me, let me correct that, right? I believe if they were released, man, the crime rate would go down. I, there's no doubt in my mind about that. Because, you know, uh, when the poison becomes the cure, man, you know, sometimes you got to take those, look at AA and NA. What, what did it, you know... This is done by alcoholics, right? And it's a successful program for alcoholics, right? You need people that bend. I'm not going to learn MMA from a basketball player. I'm not going to learn football from a baseball player, right? So if I want to learn how to change my life and get rid of that that life of crime, I got to I got to learn from those that have been there, man. If, if I'm involved in it, I'm saying I'm not talking about somebody that's never been involved in it. You, can, you don't need a criminal to get somebody that's walking a straight line to continue on the straight line. My case. And I argued this to the uh, Florida Supreme Court. My case didn't fight, fit the criteria. Even Court TV was surprised with the outcome. My case never fit the criteria for manslaughter conviction, culpable negligence, right? It doesn't – if you read the case, either I was freaking guilty for premeditated execution-style first-degree murder, and I should be sitting in prison in the death penalty or two life sentences, or – I was not guilty. There was no room for manslaughter, second degree, third degree, when you read the case on the way everything happened. Either I did it or I didn't. Simple as that. Right? And I wasn't even at the crime scene. Undisputed. Undisputed. Right? Undisputed. Regardless of what kind of street rumors are out there about me pulling up. I had like 30 witnesses. State prosecutors didn't even allege for me to be there. Right? None of that. Right? I was like 
literally, I think, 30, 40 minutes away from where the crime scene was, 30, 40, something like that. It doesn't even matter. The, the point that I'm trying to make, that there's no manslaughter to my case. So I argue that, that that was a compromised verdict. And the reason why I was able to argue that in the justice system is because uh, one of the jurors came forward and admitted that there were the, the jury was split dead in half. Half of them wanted to release me, and the other half wanted to convict me of first degree. And then so they came up with what you call a compromised verdict because they wanted to go home. They said, you know what, let's just find them guilty of manslaughter, right? And they did that. And so when the juror came forward and admitted that, they, the juror actually went to my lawyer's house and told my lawyer this. So I raised the issue. Compromised verdict is supposed to be illegal. They, that's not the, the jury instructions didn't give them a, a, the ability to compromise a verdict. You understand? If I was if the six that felt like I was not guilty, they were supposed to cling to that, and I was supposed to get a retrial. You understand what I'm saying? Not compromise right. on a freaking offense that doesn't fit the crime, right? And that's exactly what happened. So the Florida Supreme Court's argument was this is called a jury pardon. Basically, be lucky that you weren't convicted of first degree. I get that, right? But how's about if I didn't do the thing, period, and I was just keeping my mouth shut, right? And this is what like, goes back to what I said about the stupid gang lifestyle, the criminal gang lifestyle, right? I shouldn't have been convicted, period. Forget, oh, you know, let, let me beat you up and down this road and then find out you didn't do nothing. But, hey, at least you didn't die, Ruben, right? Nah, that's not how that works. Dane, let me beat you behind, uh, uh, up and down this mall strip for 10 minutes. You know, even though you went to the hospital for five years and you can't hear and you can't do this no more, hey, at least you didn't die. But, but Ruben, what were you hitting me for? I didn't deserve to hit Dane, right? And that, that's how the case is. So I, I'm supposed to just settle for this instead of – you get what I'm saying? It's just – and that's that's the type of justice system we're dealing with now. Fifteen years, my juvenile record, the six the, when I was sixteen, enhanced it with that illegal uh, waving me over as an adult. Enhanced that. Normally, when you're first time convicted of a manslaughter charge, um, pretty much everywhere but here in some states, manslaughter is excusable homicide. It, it, you don't even do time. But here in Florida, most people will get probation, two, three, four years. I, I got the I got the maximum stuck to me because of the the prior conviction when I was a kid. With the 1990s over and Ruben behind bars, he finally embarked on a new path. I decided to leave the gang lifestyle in 2000, the year 2000, um, when I was sitting in that county jail, looking at more time than what a human is even capable of doing, and when the statements started coming in, it's called discovery for and legal terminology, right? It's when the when basically when the snitches start coming through. When the state has to turn over everything they got, everybody they spoke with, everybody the law and I just was shocked at the so called gangsters, right? These so called gangsters that I had seen mind you do some real silly stuff in the street, right? Uh all of a sudden now they're all snitches, but none of them came from, not one. Not one was a great citizen, outstanding dude or chick, because there were some snitches from the female side, too, that came forward and said, hey, I just want to provide you with this information. That's not how every single body that gave negative statements towards it, every single one of them was pending something. You get what I'm saying? So, you know, they, so when I started seeing, like, like I'm being loyal to this, because when you're loyal to a gang, you're not loyal to a hand sign. You're not loyal to a color. You're not loyal uh, uh, um, to the way you stand or rock your hat, right? You're really loyal to two things, the principles 
that the gang members have put forward or the gang members themselves. So when the gang members themselves, the majority, when the majority of that, 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 of them apples went rotten, man, it, 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 it's, it's time not even to pluck out the good apples. It's not even time to do that no more, man. It's time to burn it all up, right? And my way of burning it all up wasn't to snitch my way out because I could have had all them people, every single one of them people that snitched on me, right? And I'm gonna, I'm, they're not even worthy to be called snitches. They were just providing information because they knew it was a hot topic. And, and they wanted out of their own cases, right? But they, uh, I could have burned them all, man. I could have finished them all. And I decided right there, that was my moment. I said, you know what? I'm going to take this to trial. I didn't do this. But because of my association with these people, these snitches, these so-called gangbanging son of a gun, right? Then this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this to trial. I'm not going to snitch on it, but I'm done with this. So I, I um, sent a letter to uh, the dude who was old, you know, who used to be my leader in Miami. And I told him, well, all due respect, man, I, I can't respect this no more. I can't, I can't, uh, you know, I'm going to take this to trial. And he stood by my side throughout the whole thing. Yeah, of course I remember the day I got out. That was probably the best day of my life, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, 2014, January, January um, 25th. I had already made up my mind, man, uh, almost 15 years before that, or about literally that, that I wasn't going to be involved in crime anymore. You know, there there comes a time, man, that uh, either, you know, either you're going to continue in a lifestyle, or you know, it's just really that simple, right? I guess that has to do with a lot of things. Like I, I've heard a lot of people try to uh, stop smoking cigarettes. They tried this, they tried that, this didn't work. This made them feel suicidal, this didn't work, right? But I've met a lot of people that quit smoking that said, you know what? I woke up that day, I hit that cigarette one time, I threw it away, I never smoked cigarettes again. It just becomes, a, and the same thing with crime, man. There comes a time when you're done, you're done, period. You know, you're not going to be involved in crime no more. So my uh, philosophy had obviously changed on the misdirection I had taken in life. And uh, so I did decide while I was incarcerated that I wanted to get heavily involved in youth crime prevention. And I never thought it would get to the scale that it's at right now. I just wanted to really deal with family and friends, their kids. Right, because they were always saying, "Man, I can't wait for you to get out to talk to my son. He thinks he's a gangbanger." Or talk to my daughter; she's out here doing this. And, you know, so I was like, "You know what? We're gonna want to spend fun activities with the kids and tell them, you know, give them a little background, right, on why it's not worth it." You know, and not from a cheesy perspective. And I say cheesy because when I was going to the high school, the middle school, they would have law enforcement officers come in tell us not to join gangs. The same law enforcement officers that would, when, when they were captured on the street, they would beat us, right? We knew them all. They, they, were, they, they were freaking abusive. We definitely weren't respecting them, right? Um, they, they weren't showing us what the example was to be a good person. The majority, not all of them, but the majority of the ones involved in that back then. And then they had guys coming up to talk to us that were in gangs, but we didn't respect them guys, man, because either A, they were snitches, and we knew it, or B, we didn't know who they were couldn't take a no-name and put him in front of us and give us a bunch of gang stories from them, and then we're going to respect that. And it, it had the complete opposite effect. We, like, we didn't respect them. We felt like, you know, <laughs> they were whack. You know what I mean? They, they, were, they were switching out. But, um, yeah, I did want to do youth crime prevention, and I, I did start with family and friends. That's exactly what I started with. You know, the kids are family and friends. And we all did it together, the parents and uh, myself. And, uh, no, I didn't think I was going to be involved with um, prison reform because Florida – First of all, I had moved out of Florida the day I got out, and um, Florida just wasn't that type of state that that I, I thought could have changed to it, and behold, I'm wrong, because um, 
for the past three or four years, man, um, the prison reform movement in Florida is, is very powerful, man. It, it's, it's in full effect. In fact, when I, when I get off the phone call with you, we're going to be doing a, uh, an inter, uh, we're going to be doing some interviews with, uh, our house representative in my area with the, uh, ACLU of Florida. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't think change come, but there's so many parents, mostly females, man, mothers of people incarcerated and, um, wives of people incarcerated and then the formerly incarcerated as well. And the movement is very powerful right now in Florida. Thank God for that. So, no, I didn't think I would be involved in prison reform, but I, I did definitely think I would be involved in uh, um, prison prevention. Once that little boy who didn't like violence, Ruben has since added fight coach to his resume, teaching kids to take up sport, develop as people, and lead positive lives, alongside John Frank of the United States Fight League, a former Marine, U.S. Marshal, and part of the Department of Justice. MMA uh, became the focus of root camp because... Um, first of all, the name came from I, – I, I was exercising with the, the, the kids, right, you know, the family kids and stuff, and people were like, man, that's not boot camp. That's root camp, you know, a play on my name, Ruben, right? So most people call me Rue. Not most people, but, but the people that are very close with me, right? So, um, you know, Florida, down south, man, we have this language where everything everything's cut, man. You're not Joe Ed, you're Joe. You know, every, it's like it's a lazy language down here, man, in the South, right? They don't like to say the whole name, so they're always chopping it up or doubling it up. It's not Joe, it's Joe Joe. Same thing happened with me. It became root camp, right? Um, so it, it was actually a, 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 a play on words. And um, so the way MMA got into root camp was I was involved in uh, – I wanted to uh, be a, a pro MMA fighter, man. That was that was my, um, my goal before I was incarcerated. You know, I was training um, – with the Carlson Gracie team, which, um, in my humble opinion, and probably a lot of other people in 1997, uh, was probably the uh, most successful MMA team in the world at that time. So I was training with them from 97, 99. I started doing the boxing stuff, and um, I wanted to be a pro fighter, man. That that was my dream. I had been in a lot of street prison fights, and um, I dominated the vast majority of the fights. And a lot of people said, "Man, you should be fighting professionally, man." So that, that's exactly what my dream was, to be a professional fighter. So I didn't let um, a lot of prison time dictate my goals and passions in life. But what happened was my prison time affected it because before I was released, they, they took away the heavyweights. They took away the vitamin D, the milk. They took away the fresh fruits. They only started giving us real meat once a week, and it was disgusting in most places. It wasn't fully cooked chicken. And they started um, basically injecting us, uh, oh, gosh, two, two, three, we only get three meals a day. But out of out of those meals, there was always something on that plate called TDP, textured vegetable protein. And I don't know if you know, but soy, too much soy in a male starts bringing out uh, female genes in them, female Right, estrogen. Yeah, estrogen, exactly. And a lot of people don't, I had to get into the science of that, man. And in Illinois, they were suing behind that. Like, in Illinois, they have been doing it for years. Guys are waking up, and, you know, guys were waking up with, with breasts, and, they, you know, they were feminizing the men with this TVP, right? And I don't know if it was uh, uh, done on purpose, which I wouldn't doubt, right, because it, ma- it made the inmates weaker, um, or it was done uh, because it just, you know, TVP lasts a lot longer with storage, and it's very cheap. So, you know, we can't even eat soybeans. We'll die. You know, it's goes through so much of a process, right? So, so many people out here in society look at, at soy as the, you know, the uh, the god of foods, unfortunately. But they need to research that. Men need to research it really heavy, man. Too much of that crap 
will feminize you. So um, I stopped eating it, man, eating a bunch of people, so I was eating a little bit of nuts. So what happened was my bones got brittle, man. You know, and then I would get, I would be in confinement a lot. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to, there's nobody in prison going to tell you they took something from me and I didn't react on it or, or, you know, they put their hands on me and I didn't react on it or none, none of that. So I, you know, when, when you react back, it's against the rules in the prison system to, uh, to, to fight back. And I, and I sure was fighting back, if not fighting first. So, um, I spent a lot of time in confinement. That was a lack of sun. So between everything I said, the lack of fresh fruits, the lack of real meat, the TDP, the lack of uh, um, the, the lack of weights and stuff like that, you know, I didn't realize how weak my bones were until I, I was released. So I signed up for my MMA fight immediately. I had a, supposed to be a co-main event in Vegas. I fought the uh, champ in Rochester, New York, and so I still wanted that live that career. And um, I ended up training a bunch of kids, man. When my sister lived in Orlando, I was just busy, and. Um, I started training the, the same kids I told the family kids, and then, man, within a week, I had about 10, 15 kids jump on my sister's gate, um, saying, can I train with you, can I train with you? And um, a lot of them were, it was from different spectrums. Um, some of them were gang members, some of them were just regular kids in the hood, in a poor neighborhood. Some of them were drug dealers, some of them were victims of um, gang violence in the area, literally had been hospitalized and stuff like that. And... Um, so I trained them for two or three weeks. I went, I went headed back towards the West. I was staying out there in Los Angeles. And um, my sister called me and she said, uh, and excuse the language, but she's like, Ruben, they, they need you back over here. The parents are asking where you're at. The kids are asking where you're at. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not moving back to Florida. And she was like, listen, man, you're, 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 you're grown. You're not who you used to be. And then she said, you're stupid. You just need to stop fighting. Give it to the kids, man. Let them live your dreams through through you. I was like, nah, you know, that felt like a weak concept to me. Like, let, but then I started thinking about it, man. I, I, I've been in hundreds of fights. And look, I survived, right? I, I, maybe tomorrow I get shot. Maybe tomorrow I get stabbed. Who knows, right? Anything can happen, right? But right now, 44 years old, talking to Dane McGuire, I've never been stabbed ex- except for by doctors. I've never been shot. And it's not that people haven't tried to stab me or shoot me, right? And nobody cracked my head. Nobody's knocked me out. That could happen tomorrow, right? I'm not saying it can't happen. But I've, I've, I have nothing to prove to nobody, man. Nothing. Period. I've been I've been in the ring. I've been on the mats. Uh, so I said, you know what? I made the decision. I was like, yeah, man. I, my sister was right. I'm gonna give it to the kids, man. If they love this self defense MMA, and it became it became it became the bread and butter of root camp. And that wasn't the intentions from the beginning, you know. But it became fitness was and MMA was, you know, to train them an hour or two. But um, it became, that's what became the bread and butter. So I took these kids from this high crime area, this very poor area, and um. Man, we when we started the team, we were in the we were in the cage in two weeks, man, fighting kids that have been doing karate and Muay Thai and kickboxing for five, six, seven, eight years, man. Uh, uh, some of them were authentic world champs in the karate world, and uh, man, some of the kids came up afterwards and said, "Man, I've never had a fight that hard." Like I said, we were only training kids for two weeks, so you know, I, I knew I had a bunch of tough kids on my hands that had a lot of good potential to be what I what I should have been, what I could have been but couldn't have been because of what the uh, prison system had done. I had started the the first um, and possibly still only uh, MMA curriculum in a private school. I know it was the only official uh, MMA uh, registered private school in the United States, but it's possible that it was the only one in the world as well, and that became successful. uh, But but anyhow... uh, 
John Frank had reached out to me on Facebook. I didn't know who he was. I didn't even know what he did. And he um, he said, hey, man, congratulations on what you're doing. You're doing great work. Of, uh, are you interested in getting involved in the youth and creation? I didn't know what that was, but when I went out and studied what he did, it, it, it was absolutely everything I wanted. Um, I mean, everything. I mean, John Frank came from the other spectrum. He came from uh, former law enforcement, former military. You know, um, he, he was even very blunt and straight up with me about, you know, he had, he had pretty much distanced himself from people like myself dealing with the league. You know what I'm saying? But And he was also man enough to admit that that was an error that he made because he sees that this sport is a, is a second chance for kids, man, and for coaches. Let me add that, right? And um, so, and it absolutely is. I remember giving him an example, like, you know, name the five top boxers, name them. And I said, I'm guaranteeing whatever you name four of them been in prison <laughs> or jail, right? And that's not to say that that's the right thing to do. I'm just saying that, you know, this is this is a tough sport, man, and it is, it is a life-changing sport. But, you know, with the league, he was pushing for the Olympic recognition. He had been doing youth MMA longer than anybody, any other organization in the United States. Um, he had a character development program with it. Um, and then I realized that uh, that league, I remember seeing an a article when I was in prison from the ESPN magazine that it talked about that. I still have that somewhere, right? And the coach has done what? I mean, you can't give recognition to a kid without giving recognition to the coach. Um, the coach did a well, Riverside Commission did an excellent job. Um, um, but um, I have my hero. I read the article and I remember seeing I said, man, I want a kid to be just like her. Uh, I didn't know I would end up with like 50 kids just like her. Well, not to her degree, obviously, but, you know, still doing the cage, fighting his kids, no headshots. You know, real tough, um, still can be very childlike with it, you know. But um, when I found out that that was the league, he was the run, you know, one, the, the president of that league, the owner, I thought, oh, yeah, I went in on this for sure. So we started the United States Fight League East, and um, it, it was wonderful, man. We were able to tap into a lot of gyms and very um, strong athletic kids here in the eastern, southeastern United States. Um and even in the Central, before um, Christina Taylor started running the USFL Central, um, we were able to tap into a lot of those areas where kids normally would have to travel all the way to California, where they didn't even know about the league. And uh, we pulled out some real some some of the some of the kids from the uh, USFL Southeast are, are some of the most dominant kids in the entire league. I'm not you know I'm not trying to play East versus West right now, but we've had a lot of East versus West matches and uh and the East for being new kids on the block, you know, they've had been doing that, what, 17 years? We had just started doing that two, three months when we started it over here. And we had kids that were dominating, not just winning, dominating. So, you know, it was, it's a good thing because out in the West, they've been fighting each other forever, the kids out there. You know, we got like 100 registered kids, and they've been going at it, and I'm sure they got tired of fighting each other over and over again. So we brought a lot of new kids on the block, which helped challenge them as well. But I love all the kids, man, in the league, the majority of them. I, there's some I don't know, but almost every single one of them that I've gave with, they, they, they're just wonderful kids, man. Like 95% of them. Of course, you got, you know, like with all things, everything, you got, you know, everywhere and every, every, every human aspect. But 95% of them kids, wonderful kids. Now, I honor them. I look up to them. They're my heroes. The kids of the United States fight. These are my heroes. The USFL would put together the National Youth Pancration, or Youth MMA team, under the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation, a partner of the UFC, with a goal of Olympic recognition. Last year, Coach Rubin had the opportunity to go to Rome, as the team, led by dominant female performances, 
topped the standings at the first Youth World Championships, winning three bronze, nine silver, and 16 gold medals for the overall victory. Absolutely one of the highlights of my life. I mean, it couldn't get no better here. And I'm half, I'm half Italian, right? So that 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 helped too. That was in Rome. I got to visit, you know, one of my motherlands, right? So outside of the cultural aspect of it, um, one of the highlights because to be the only male coach from the southeastern United States um, of the number one undisputed team in the world, the United States Fight League. Team USA, right? Uh, Team USA, however you want to call it. But everybody knows it's the United States Fight League, man, because there wasn't any other legal organization participating um, overseas in that, right? And it was my first time leaving the United States. Um, So, you know, to see the kid, let me tell you, man, I don't know if you watched that or not, but the girls, the girls showed up. A lot of our stronger males that I thought would win didn't. The girls didn't play, man. And they put the girls up first, so the girls – the girls put the bar really high. I mean, they were subbing, and we were, well, it was almost 300, almost 300 young youth athletes, uh, through 27 countries. Um, Ukraine, Mexico, and Russia, no joke. Um, London had a good team. I mean, I'm not talking any other team, but those teams, like, they brought it, man. They didn't bring it to play either. Um, it, it was wonderful, man, to watch. The girls dominated all across the board. I mean, like, really, really, they opened it up right, man, for the first, I think they fought the first day, possibly the second day. They were killing it, man. Back to, I mean, they made up other girls look like they, they didn't even train before. <laughs> the girls dominated, man. The girls, the girls, I, I got to tip my hat to them, man. <laughs>